This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 11th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Alexa Billow talks with Caitlin Gostick about the long-lasting effects of our first flu. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and its members. Find AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on the case of the missing earthquakes. Bhutan is a small country of less than 1 million people, squeezed high in the Himalayas between two earthquake-prone neighbors, India and China. The question is, why has Bhutan apparently gone 500 years without a sizable quake. Yeah, and so there's been a couple of ideas or hypotheses. One is that Bhutan is actually a seismic, which means it's just incapable of producing large earthquakes. The other idea is that it has produced earthquakes. We just don't have very good historical records of the country, and so it's more of an information gap than anything else. Geophysicists then linked up with historians to try to figure out this problem. Right, and so these uh, historians examined published accounts of Bhutanese history, for example, personal diaries written by monks going back a few hundred years. And what they found is that in the year 1714, they found a couple different historical texts that talked about a large earthquake. Actually, one was fairly dramatic and talked about a child whose mother was actually killed by a quake and the child himself was actually buried in rubble and had to be extracted from the rubble. The historical evidence now suggested that, okay, Seems like in 1714 there was a quake, but obviously the geologists wanted to see, well, is there any earth science we can add to the story? What kinds of things were they looking for? Well, they dug trenches in Bhutan to look for tectonic faults that showed evidence of movement. And what they found was they found evidence of an earthquake that occurred along one fault somewhere between 1642 and 1836. And 
because 1714 kind of falls right in the middle of that, they think it might be the same quake that these ancient monks were talking about. So they aren't a tiny earthquake-free zone in the middle of the Himalayas then? They're not. And in fact, they think this quake, this 1714 quake, was actually pretty large, could have been anywhere between a 7.5 and 8.5 magnitude, which is comparable to the Nepal quake that happened in 2015 that killed nearly 9,000 people. So not only is Bhutan not quake-free, it's actually capable of producing pretty strong quakes. Next up, we have a story on being lucky in science. What does it take to get ahead in this field? Hard work? Yeah. Clever thinking? Mm-hmm. And a lot of luck, according to a new study. Dave, how did they find out how much luck you need in order to be successful as a scientist? Well, this all started in 2013 when a group of researchers found that they could take a single scientific paper that maybe had a handful of citations and predict how many citations that paper would eventually wind up with. In other words, how many other papers cited that paper? And the more cited a paper is, the more influential it is. So in the new study, they wondered if they could extrapolate that to sort of figuring out, well, because scientists publish lots of papers and the citations of these papers can really have an impact on a scientist's career, can we determine when in a scientist's career he or she is going to publish their sort of big influential paper. And you might think, well, it's probably going to be the end of the career because, you know, they're getting all these years of experience and they're making all these connections with colleagues and they're building upon and building upon their research. But that's not what the researchers found. This is where the randomness comes in, right? This is where the randomness comes in. And what they found is that it actually is pretty random. They looked at uh, more than 100,000 scientists for up to 20 years of their career. And they found that, you know, sometimes scientists had their big paper right out of the gate. Sometimes it was midway through their career. And sometimes it was at the end of their career. So the only factor that seemed to correlate with success in in terms of getting a lot of citations for a paper was how productive they were? It's kind of like buying a lottery ticket. Yes, it's random, but if you buy a ton of lottery tickets, you're really going to increase your chances of winning the lottery. And so scientists, if they have a part of their career where they're publishing a lot of papers, the chances are that that big paper is going to be among that bunch is increased. Another factor they pulled out, they designated the Q factor, and that says something about the trajectory of a scientist's career more generally. Well, right. And so the question was, by the time a scientist gets to their 40th paper, sort of how influential is that paper going to be? And that's sort of what they call the Q factor. And they sort of use the sort of the same, some of the same approaches. And they found that indeed they could predict with reasonable accuracy just how highly cited that 40th paper of a scientist's career would be, and thus sort of how influential that scientist was maybe towards the end of their career. You know, and the data for that they needed was 20 papers and 10 years worth of citation data. So you're already pretty well along in your career if you're going to be having this analysis done. That's right. Yeah. What about these researchers? Did they turn the numbers on themselves? <laughs> they did not, or at least the first author didn't. And she says, well, it's because she's not far along enough in her career to actually do this type of analysis. But she says when the time comes, she will not do it. <laughs> <laughs> Last up, we have a story on how farming changed the dog. Dogs can handle a lot more wheat or grain in their daily diet than their near relatives, wolves. It turns out this may be due to dogs' long association with us. Um, Dave, why are we making our dogs eat grain and why don't 
Why doesn't it hurt them? <laughs> well, when you think about when dogs were first domesticated, which was probably longer than 15,000 years ago, they were living with hunters and gatherers, which means they were mostly eating meat probably. But when we started to settle down and become farmers, meat all of a sudden became a much smaller part of our diet, which meant that any animals hanging around us, i.e. dogs, it had to become a much smaller percentage of their diet as well. Otherwise, they weren't going to be able to survive. If they couldn't digest new foods like wheat and millet, they weren't going to be able to survive in this newly transformed human society. And now we have some genetic evidence for not only this ability in dogs to handle grain better than wolves, but also this timing with with the turn to agriculture. That's right. So what the researchers did in the study was they looked at a lot of ancient dogs. You know, they looked at sites that were maybe 5,000 to 7,000 years old, these, some of these ancient farming sites, and they extracted DNA from the teeth of ancient dogs from these sites and also from wolves from these sites. And what we do know about modern dogs is that they've got a lot of copies of a gene called AMI2B, which helps digest starch. In fact, modern dogs have somewhere between four and 30 copies, whereas wolves only have about two. So we know at some point, modern dogs got a lot of genes to help them digest starch. And what this archaeological evidence suggested is that this seemed to have happened around 7,000 years ago, which is, again, that's that was a really sort of important time where humans were really getting hot and heavy into farming. There are a few kinds of modern dogs that don't have this gene duplication. I think one of them was huskies. Why do the scientists think that might be going on? Well, both huskies and dingoes, like wolves, only have a couple of copies of this AMI2B gene. And scientists think it's because these dogs traditionally have spent a lot of their time with people who until very recently hunted or fished for most of their food. So they had no evolutionary reason to adapt to this high starch diet while all other dogs did. All right, I'm going to ask a tough question now, Dave, the one that I always want to know the answer to. Why didn't this happen with cats? Um, yeah, and actually, I don't. we don't know that it didn't happen with cats. I'm not sure the analysis has been done. But one interesting thing that happened to cats as they became domesticated is that their intestines grew a little bit longer. Mm. And scientists think the reasons were similar. Cats at this time were also eating a lot of starchy foods, and you actually need longer intestines to process this type of food. So cats may have adapted in their own way. Okay, before we get to what else is on the site this week, Dave, you have a quiz question for me? I do. All right, Sarah, new research shows that a recent mutation in this virus may have made it even deadlier. Is it the Zika virus, the Ebola virus, chikungunya, or HIV? I don't know this one. Zika. You are incorrect. Oh. It is actually Ebola. And a new study suggests that the virus underwent a mutation that made it better suited for humans than for its presumed natural host, a fruit bat species, and this helped it disseminate farther and wider and thus kill a lot more people. Okay. Well, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about ticklish rats. Are rats actually capable of being tickled? And do they laugh? <laughs> also a story about how a new visualization of the human heart could help predict stroke risk. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a lot of election coverage this week, notably stories on how the incoming Trump administration could affect science policy, key science positions in the U.S., and also what advice scientists have for the new administration. So be sure to check out all that, plus the weekly quiz 
on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. Influenza viruses that normally infect animals can sometimes spill over to humans. These animal-borne flu spillovers show a baffling distribution among birth years. Depending on whether you were born before or after 1968, you may be at greater risk for the H7N9 strain of flu or H5N1. With the threat of avian flu outbreaks on the horizon, there may be good news about our ability to predict who will be affected. I'm Alexa Billow. Here to talk about this research is Caitlin Gostick. Caitlin, welcome. Hi. Great to talk to you. First, can you give us some quick background on the immunology? In particular, in the paper, you talk about this phenomenon of imprinting, where apparently your first flu stays with you. There are a bunch of different subtypes of the influenza virus, and some of these subtypes circulate in humans, and those cause the sort of winter infections that we're used to. But other subtypes circulate in animals. But all of these subtypes are genetically related and can be classified into one of two genetic groups. So the key idea in our study is that a person's first flu infection during childhood determines which of these two genetic groups they'll be preferentially protected against later in life. So basically, you gain lifelong partial protection against whichever group of influenza viruses was responsible for your first childhood infection. And this is really important because it means that protection from this sort of childhood imprinting could even protect you against flu subtypes that circulate in animals and are totally unfamiliar to humans. Can you tell us a little bit more about these subtypes and how they're different from each other, since they apparently are both in the human and animal versions of flu? The subtypes, they're based on different antigens on the virus's surface, which is basically the part of the virus that your immune system responds to when you get an infection. And so originally, these subtypes were given different numbers to indicate whether or not they were able to cross-react immunologically. So to make that a little bit more concrete, H1 is an example of one of the flu subtypes. And the basic idea was that if you were previously exposed to, say, an H1 virus, that wouldn't protect you against a virus that had another antigenic subtype like H2 or H3 or H5 or H7 which are the subtypes on these avian viruses that we've seen spill over many, many times from poultry into humans. So this whole idea that immune memory is subtype specific has always made us assume that the entire human population would be immunologically defenseless in an influenza pandemic. And by definition, influenza pandemics happen when these new subtypes that are unfamiliar to humans emerge from animals and sweep through the human population, replacing whatever subtypes had previously been circulating in humans. And so now we realize that this idea of subtype-specific immune memory isn't the whole story, especially when a person is first exposed to an influenza virus that's really distantly related to the viruses that they've seen in the past. We think the immune system can sometimes mount more broadly protective responses against parts of the virus that are really similar across different subtypes. And these broadly protective responses seem to be really good at protecting against all or most of the subtypes in one or the other of these two genetic groups. So what does that mean for how the flu spreads among human populations? Does this mean that we might be a little bit more protected against the H5N1 outbreak that everyone's terrified of than we thought? Yeah, that's exactly right. So the caveat that I'll open with is that because we're not sure how these responses would affect repeated exposure to the same subtype, we can't 
say anything yet about seasonal flu, the kind of flu that you get vaccinated against every year. But we definitely think these results mean that certain age groups with matched child exposures to a pandemic subtype would have pre-existing protection. And then on the flip side, age groups with mismatched child exposures to the opposite subtype might be especially vulnerable in a pandemic. So there's good news and bad news, but overall we think this is great because in the past, like I said, we've assumed that all age groups would be defenseless in a pandemic. But now we have this new ability to predict based on people's childhood exposures whether or not they'll be at high risk. And that can help epidemiologists figure out how to allocate limited treatment resources if a pandemic does occur. Why have people with different birth years been exposed to different strains of animal-borne flu? With influenza viruses that circulate in humans, we usually only have one or more recently two subtypes that circulate at a time. And these subtypes will dominate circulation in humans for decades. So the idea is that when we have a pandemic, a new subtype emerges from animals and sweeps through the human population, replacing whatever was circulating before. But for the next five or 10 or maybe even 40 years until the next pandemic, that same subtype is basically the only thing that continues to circulate in humans. Since we have a really clear timeline of flu pandemic history going back over 100 years, we can figure out which subtypes were circulating in particular birth years and then use a person's birth year to figure out which subtypes they were most likely exposed to when they were children. You talked about how this helps us predict what groups of people will be more vulnerable in the event of a flu pandemic. Does it also help predict what flu is more likely to be the next pandemic? Can you find out what strains of flu we ought to watch out for? We definitely have a better ability to do this than we did in the past, because in the past, like I said, we assumed that any subtype that emerged to cause a pandemic would basically have an immunological blank slate in the human population. But on the flip side, this idea that childhood immune imprinting provides large fractions of the population with some pre-existing protection, this tells us that certain subtypes in one or the other genetic group should actually face more or less resistance as it spreads through humans, just based on which subtypes have dominated in humans recently, right? So basically, the human population will accumulate immunity against the same group that's been circulating for a long period of time, and that could make it harder for a subtype in the same group to emerge and cause the next pandemic. I would say, though, that this doesn't definitely tell us that there's always going to be a switch between one and the other genetic group with each subsequent pandemic. We've definitely seen examples in the past where we've had a group one pandemic followed by another group one pandemic a few decades later. But the accumulation of immune protection in humans definitely does at least raise the barrier to entry and give us some idea of maybe how severe a pandemic caused by one or the other group might be. Caitlin, thanks for talking with us today. Yeah, no problem. Caitlin Gostick and colleagues write about the protective effect of childhood flu infections in this week's issue of Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, 
Thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.